Gretchen Rubin is one of the most thought-provoking and influential writers on the linked subjects of habits, happiness, and human nature. She's the author of many books, including the blockbuster New York Times bestsellers, Happier at Home and The Happiness Project. Gretchen has an enormous following in print and online. Her books have sold more than a million copies worldwide in more than 30 languages. And in her popular daily blog, GretchenRubin.com, she reports on her adventure in pursuits of habits and happiness. Her podcast, Happier with Gretchen Rubin, was an iTunes Best of 2015 pick. Gretchen, welcome. I'm so happy to be talking to you. Thanks for having me. So great to have you. I can't believe we haven't had you, but uh, there's no time like the present. So so welcome. (laughs) It's been quite a while since you wrote The Happiness Project. What's changed when it comes to what we know about our happiness? Well, I think that some of our understandings have deepened. And I think just everything that's happened in recent years has shown us more than ever what we knew before. Ancient philosophers and contemporary scientists agree that to be happy, we have to have enduring intimate bonds. We need to feel like we belong. We need to feel like we can confide. We need to be able to get support. And just as important for happiness, we need to be able to give support. And I think what's been really interesting about, say, the last 18 months or I think what's been really interesting about this pandemic period is that it's shown people, it's demonstrated to people how crucial these relationships are and how important it is that we're innovative and resilient and figuring out a way to work with limitations so that we can forge the relationships that are so crucial when something gets in our way, when kind of the ways that we usually do it don't work. I have been really surprised and interested to see how quickly people have adapted and how eagerly they've reached out for new tools and new ways to connect. So on the subject of the pandemic, we we live in a very uncertain world right now, becoming a little bit more certain, but Mm -hmm. still quite uncertain. How do you think about the role uncertainty plays Mm -hmm. with our happiness and is good, bad, negligible? I think it's I think it's a huge issue for people. And I think you're exactly right. That's part of what has made this period difficult. And I guess I think for a lot of people, my impression was they were like, give me a deadline. Like, tell me, like, what's this going to be? And I can pace myself and I will work towards that deadline. But I need that deadline. And when the deadline started to move or the deadline was like, well, maybe it's a deadline, but maybe it's not a deadline. Or some people think, hey, we've passed that deadline. And other people are like, no, I don't think we've passed that deadline. So there wasn't it wasn't agreement when it wasn't clear. I think another kind of uncertainty was that one thing that surprised me about my own life, and I think a lot of people feel this way, is that we have kind of milestones throughout our year. And it's like I go to Kansas City, which is my hometown, to see my parents for the holidays every year. That happens every year, like my whole life. I think the only time I missed it was because I was like about to have a baby, so I couldn't I couldn't fly. And sometimes when these milestones are taken away from us, then that then we feel very uncertain about even kind of the consequences of time or how time is unfolding. And I think that's one reason that people have talked about how they feel like this time has been kind of, it feels endless, but it also feels like it passed in a flash. There's sort of a weird quality about the, just the nature of the way this time has been passing. So I think uncertainty is a big issue. We want to have control and we know that in many ways it's an illusion that we have control, but we cling <laughs> to that illusion. We want to feel like we're in control. There's a lot of research showing that people have been like clearing clutter a lot, partly because they need the space in their homes, but also just to like feel like they're more in control of their environments. 
And um, I wrote a little book called Outer Order, Inner Calm. And I know that feeling well. That sometimes if you feel like I can't control my schedule, but I can control my coat closet and that's going to make me feel better, even if I know it's they're not really very significantly related. And can having too much certainty lead to unhappiness? You know, you always hear the anecdote about someone in corporate America. It's this, the same commute, the same job, mm -hmm. everything's the same. And then one day they just say, I've had enough, even though control is an illusion. Mm -hmm. Like, how do you think about what, what's the healthy balance? Like on one hand, living in a pandemic, okay, way too much, can't handle this. But like, how do you think about that that balance? Well, you're exactly right. That novelty and challenge tend to make people happier. And even kind of small things like going to a new restaurant or walking through a new neighborhood tends to make people happier. And so we need that novelty. We need that challenge. We need an atmosphere of growth. Like we need to feel that in some ways we're pushing ourselves, we're learning something or teaching something, making something better, helping someone, growing in some way. And a lot of times that gives us uncertainty because it's like, well, I think that I want to learn to play the guitar, but I don't know what I'm doing and I don't know how this is going to go. So some kinds of uncertainty are really like really can support our happiness. But and, and as you say, too much certainty can make people feel stifled and like sort of claustrophobic. And I think research shows, and I think this is obvious just from our own lives, people have very different tolerances for excitement and uncertainty and spontaneity. I'm a person who loves routine. I love mastery. I eat the same food every day. I do the same things every day. And I love that. But I know that many people would not choose to have the kind of existence that I really thrive on. So I think for each of us, it's, we have to find that right balance for ourselves. Yeah. And I think what, what you're hitting on too, ha having the same food every day, I think it speaks to something you also touch on, the power of habits, the power mm. of routines. From yeah. a personal standpoint, for me, it's helpful because as an entrepreneur, there's a lot I can't control. Right. And so there are certain things like that I can control where I don't even have to think about it and yes. it brings me some level of sanity, if you will. And then there's a whole <laughs> other level of things I can't control in, in our business. And so it kind of helps balance me out. But how do you think about the power of habits and routines and the role they play? Well, I think habits are absolutely crucial. I think you put your finger right on it. I mean, research suggests that about 40% of what we do every day is governed by habits. So as you say, if you have habits that work for you, it's going to be a lot easier to be happier, healthier, more productive and more creative. And if you have habits that don't work for you, that's going to be harder. Kind of the challenge with habits is I think a lot of people are sort of like, OK, well, what's the best way or what's the right way to form a habit or like, what should I do? Should I get up early and do it first thing? And it's really depends on the person. There is no magic one size fits all solution either for how you want to set up a habit, like whether you do it in the morning or whether you do it in the afternoon. Morning people and night people are going to differ on when they feel that they're most productive and creative and energetic or kind of what tools you use. I mean, um, what I've seen is like tools like accountability are absolutely essential for some people. They need to feel accountable for someone, even to keep an inner expectation for themselves. Like if they want to read more, they need to join a book group. And then for some people, they don't, they actually don't like accountability. They don't like the feeling of someone looking over their shoulder and they do better when they're sort of like, I'm doing what I choose. I'm doing what I feel like. And in fact, I, I feel this so deeply, like that we really have to just consider the whole menu of options and choose individually the ones that are right for us. I've launched the Happiness Project, which is the site where I have all different kinds of tools and all different kinds of ways to help people find the right, figure out like 
which tool is most likely to work for them. Because I think sometimes people get really discouraged because something that works really well for someone else doesn't work for them. And they think, well, what's wrong with me? I should just try harder. I should just try again. Instead of thinking, hey, there's nothing wrong with me. I've learned something about myself. This tool doesn't work. Now I'm going to try a different tool. And I've got an app that I'm launching that's going to try to match people to the tools that are most likely to help them find success because there really are patterns and we really can learn from each other, but they're patterns. They're not like, this is the best way. And, and it's just sort of going to be useful to everyone universally. We really have to think about ourselves. So we're talking in October that this show is airing. Our listeners are listening to this sometime in November. And so we've got like 60 days to get our acts together because resolutions <laughs> are coming yeah. and resolutions fail. Yeah. So in your opinion, why do resolutions fail? And if we've got 60 days to, to get it together, what can we do to ensure that in, in 2022, our resolutions actually work for us? I think the key thing is this idea of self-knowledge, of really thinking about yourself and thinking, well, what works for me? So you could ask yourself questions like, well, is there a time when I've succeeded in the past? Like if you want to resolve to exercise consistently, say to yourself, well, have I ever exercised consistently? Because maybe the past has a clue because maybe there's something that was true in the past that I could bring into the future. For instance, as I said, many people need accountability. So maybe you went to a class with a friend and you knew that your instructor expected you to show up and you knew your friend expected you to show up, but you're having trouble going for a run on the, uh, in the morning by yourself. Okay, so what you want to say is, I need accountability. And you might also take into account things like, are you a morning person or a night person? I, as a morning person myself, I used to think that everyone should, could be a morning person if they just went to bed on time. And that if anything was difficult, you should just do it first thing when you were fresh. But it turns out that like 30% of people are night people. It's largely genetically determined and a function of age. And so you're much better off thinking, well, what's true for me? I created this journal, uh, a Know Yourself Better journal, that's full of questions that are meant to illuminate these aspects of our nature. Because sometimes we just assume that everybody's like us, or as I said, that something's wrong with us. When in fact, it's like, well, what are you like? What were Jason, what are you like? What works for you? And by by really shining a spotlight on your own nature, a lot of times people get um, big insights in how they can set themselves up for success. Because as you say, hey, by the beginning of February, most people have abandoned their resolution. So the key is how do you figure out how to set up a resolution in the way that's going to work for you? And on the subject of habits, how do you think about some of the potential unhealthy habits mm. we've developed during the pandemic, whether it's binging on Netflix or ordering pallets of toilet paper or canned beans, although that's our friend Dan Butner would say that keep on ordering the beans, very healthy. <laughs> how do you think about some of those, it's like habits, they just start to, you know, we're slipping, we're slipping and all yeah. of a sudden, oh, wow, what happened? Well, I think the question is, is are you mindfully embracing a habit? Because the thing about habits is habits are so helpful to us. They, they put a behavior on, on autopilot. So it's very easy to slip into a bad habit without quite realizing it. So I think the first thing for anyone to do, and I've certainly done this myself, is to step back and say, okay, what's going on? Have I slipped into some habits that I do not want to continue? Have I started having a midnight snack? Have I started picking up the TV remote control more often? Am I doom scrolling more? Have I kind of gotten away from my habit of reading? Have I gotten away from my habit of going for a walk every morning? Really think about the habits that you want to make 
and the habits that you want to break and be honest with yourself about what that looks like. Because I do think sometimes, especially, you know, with bad habits, it's easy to sort of tell ourselves that like, oh, I'm just doing this one time. Yeah, I do this every once in a while. This is why um, tracking the strategy of monitoring can be really helpful because if you monitor a behavior, you tend to start to do a better job of that behavior, even if you're not consciously trying to change. So if you monitor how many times you yell at your kids or how much you spend every day or how many sweets you eat, just monitoring it will tend to help you start moving in the right direction. One of my journals is a don't break the chain journal because kind of the flip side of that is when people do something every day, it's it will it it become it goes on to automatic pilot that much more easily. And when people are monitoring whether they're doing something like if I monitoring, OK, if I don't want to eat after dinner, it's like every day. Did I eat after dinner? Yes or no. As I'm tracking that, many people find this this like don't break the chain approach or this streak approach to be really helpful because once they get that streak going, they don't want to break it. So they have that reason to, to, you know, they want the satisfaction of keeping it going. And even the fact of monitoring keeps it uppermost in their mind and um, reminds them that this is something that they want to do because it can be hard to get a habit to solidify. You want to give yourself lots and lots of tools that will help it kind of take hold in your life or root it out of your life if it's something that you want to get rid of. So zooming back out, you're hitting on our narratives, the, the stories we tell ourselves. And I'm curious, what are some of those stories we tell ourselves or our personal mm. narratives that are common mm -hmm. and are detracting from our happiness? Mm -hmm. yet, yet we, we continue to tell ourselves these stories for, for example, the example that comes to mind is when I have this. I will be happy. Mm, if yeah. The tomorrow fallacy. Yes. No, that's a big one. Right. Thinking that as soon as I like get that raise or move to a new place or get married or whatever. Right. And research shows that is not does not off. It doesn't happen that way. We're much better off trying to enjoy the process and, and enjoy what's how we're getting to a certain place, because by the time that we reach it, it's probably not going it's not going to have kind of the transformative quality that we might have anticipated. I think another story that people tell themselves is I'm lazy. And I'll look at people and I'm like, how can you say that you're lazy? Because you do a million things. And they're like, yeah, but like, look at this one thing that I don't do. Or people say, well, there's something wrong with me because I keep my promises to everyone else, but I break my, I can't keep a promise to myself. And with, with the people who think that, I'm always like, well, it's a matter of outer accountability. If you had outer accountability, then you'll follow through for yourself. That's why you're meeting your promises to everybody else. So just find a way to, to get that accountability on your own because it's not laziness. It's this feeling of needing accountability, which is very, very common. A lot of people need that feeling of accountability. This is why a lot of times people in the workplace get lots of accountability. So they see themselves executing and doing tremendous amounts of work, clearly not lazy at work, but then they're frustrated at home where they don't, where they're not following through for themselves because they're breaking their promises to themselves. They get very discouraged. And again, it's like, okay, what, what's true for you? What's true for you is true for a lot of people that you need outer accountability. So just figure out a way to plug that in, take a class, work out with, do it with a friend who's going to be annoyed if you don't do it. Think about your duty to your future self. Think of your duty to be a role model. Like there's lots and lots of ways to create outer accountability. 
once you realize that's what you need. But I think a lot of people really blame themselves or think it's somehow a fault of theirs. Like, I can't put myself first or I'm immature or I'm lazy. And it's like, no, it's, it, there's nothing wrong with you. You just need to change the way things are set up so that it, you can execute for yourself on whatever your aim is. We, I hear those, those first two examples. I can't help but go to a third example, especially being in New York City, the metaphorical keeping up with the Joneses, mm. which is <laughs> amplified by social media, amplified for a number of reasons. But how do you, and I, I think we're all human, and I think no yeah. matter how much we try to avoid falling in that trap, it, it does happen. Yeah. And so how do you think about that? The one thing that is clear is that it, right, th you're talking about social comparison and that we're very sensitive to social comparison and some people are more sensitive to it than others. So I think this is, again, a great way to know yourself and think like if I'm really very distressed every time I look at social media, maybe I need to figure out a way to limit my exposure to it. Maybe I delete it altogether. Maybe I just check it for like a certain amount of time, uh, one time a day or twice a day. I have to recognize that for me, this is not a helpful tool. This isn't, I'm not finding this fun. I'm not finding this as a way to engage with people. It's not serving me. It's not making me happier or healthier, more productive. And it, you're exactly right. This is a place where technology is really an amplifier of human nature and, and people can get more social comparison in half an hour than they could have like in a whole lifetime of a medieval village because we just can get this stuff all the time. But here's the other thing about social comparison, like speaking of habits, because as you mentioned, habits are so important. One really important influence on our habits is other people. We really pick up habits from other people, good habits and bad habits. And so one of the ways if you're trying to give, foster a good habit in yourself is to try to put yourself in the company of people who have that good habit. And you can do that in person. That's great. Like hang out with people who have the habit that you want. But you could also kind of do it in a virtual way by like following people who are talking about the kinds of things that are important to you and that are kind of modeling the kind of behavior that you want to see in yourself. Because as you see other people doing it, kind of accepting it as like, oh, yeah, people totally exercise all the time. Or, you know, this is we love shopping in farmers markets and like creating healthful, creative new recipes for ourselves. That also will help to support your good habits. So there is a way that you can use the chatter of what other people are doing as a way to support you. But you're right. It, th there's a real dark side to it as well. And we need to be very aware of that. So, so following positive influence is good. Following the Kardashians, probably not so much. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so segueing to, to <laughs> segueing to IRL, we'll get off of technology. Yeah. yeah. It, it's been clear during the pandemic how much we really need yes. uh, real human connection where we're living in a loneliness epidemic. How do, what's changed for you? I think it was always, at least it was always clear to me, and I think the science was there that we, we needed real yeah. connection in terms of living a, hap a happier, healthier life. But how, how do you think about it now? And, and how do we come out of this? Well, it's a really interesting question. And I think it, there's just going to be fascinating research that comes out of it to see how, sort of how did it play out? Because we, we would never have signed up to be part of this experiment, but we did. And there's a lot to be learned. And I think one thing people really are trying to do is to say, what do we learn from the good? And how do we learn to offset what we've learned as the bad? And so for the good, I mean, one thing is, and I certainly saw this, is like people were so eager to reach out. People were very eager to make sure that people weren't left out, like maybe people who weren't so socially connected or weren't so um, savvy about using technology, trying to make sure that they learned 
how to use tools and how they were brought into networks so that they felt supported. And so I think for a lot of people, this can be great because if you have trouble leaving your home, you have problems with mobility, like a lot of these tools maybe could help you feel more connected and it can connect people. I mean, I realized one of the things I started doing in the pandemic that I'm going to definitely keep doing is a walk and talk where I would arrange for a friend and we would talk on the phone and each of us just go for a walk wherever we are. Now, obviously, I could have done this at any point, you know, at any point, there was nothing special about the pandemic to allow me to do a walk and talk, but it just had never occurred to me to do it. And at first I did it with people who like live in my neighborhood. But then I thought, why not do my friend? Why not talk to my friend in London? Why not talk to my friend in San Francisco? I live in New York. Like now I can talk to anybody and hang out with anybody. And so in a way, it deepened my distant connections because it made me so much more of a way that I could stay in closer contact with them. I just sort of forgot about the fact that somebody lives in San Francisco. Like, it's not a barrier to me talking to them on the phone. However, there is nothing that can replace being together in real life. There is just so much information that is communicated through our, my next book is about the five senses and just the information that we exchange through smell, through touch, through the currents of air that are passing between our bodies, through halls, just on, on so many levels. And you feel that people are craving this. They want that connection. And so I think as we go forward, we're going to have to find out this challenge of like, how do we, especially like when we talk about like a hybrid workplace, how do we make people feel like they're part of teams and part of a culture and that they're supported and that they learn just the way they would if they, if everybody was sitting in an office five days a week, how do we let the good things happen? while also allowing the flexibility and all of the kind of efficiencies and possibilities that are opened up when you say, well, maybe you don't have to be here five days a week. Maybe you could live somewhere else. Maybe you could have more flexibility in your schedule because clearly that is something that supports people's happiness as well. So it's going to be this balance that we're all studying. I think there's not going to be easy solutions. We're going to have to really think this through. We have a hybrid workplace here. Our office mm -hmm. is in Brooklyn, but we have half of our employees in the New York City area and half of them aren't here and mm -hmm. most of them don't come in. And so on one hand, I want to talk about, look, flexibility is amazing. Yeah. And what's the flip side of if I'm working from home remotely, what are the watchouts in terms of my well-being? If that is my new reality where I'm working remotely out of my apartment or home 80% of the time or 100% mm -hmm. of the time with regards to like, with regards to happiness? Yeah. Well, it really depends on person to person because it depends on your situation. It depends on what your alternatives is. Because if it's like, well, you could have a two hour commute either way. It's like, okay, well, I think it's going to really be a dramatic boost to my happiness. So part of it is the trade-offs for each individual. And I think it also depends on, on people's temperament. I think some people are thrive in a lot of solitude and others really rely on that constant social connection. One thing that I saw with people that I knew is people even who to me seemed pretty introverted, turned out they really relied on the workplace just to give them kind of a baseline of social engagement, maybe because they weren't the kind of people who made tons of plans and like scheduled all sorts of kind of fill in. They weren't driven to like think of a lot of workarounds. So they were very aware of like, wow, I just I was just used to seeing like a bunch of people every day and just having this, these like easy conversations. And when that's taken away, it really affected me. 
Whereas I think for other people, maybe that would not affect them so much. I also think when it comes to productivity, again, as I mentioned, accountability, I think for some people, they might find it really easy and maybe easier to focus and be productive when they're working from home. And then when they go into the office, they go into the office and they have that experience. But I think for some people, it's really a challenge. Like they thrive in kind of that workplace feeling of like, okay, we're all working now and you can't goof off because you're at work. Like, what is there to do? And everybody around you is working and they're all waiting for you to get to them with whatever it is that they're waiting for. I think for some people, that's a real challenge too. So again, I think that it's hard to make generalizations because each of us has to think of, you know, how it suits our temperament and our situation and our task too, because for some people's tasks, I mean, as a writer, I need a lot of time where no one's talking to me. I need lots and lots and lots of time wherever I am. And I know for many people, especially in open workplaces, open office workplaces, that can be hard. So everybody's trying to strike a different balance. It's, it is, it's, a, it's a puzzle. Something for me personally, this is a long time ago when I was doing something else, when I was working from home, this is where routine came in big time yeah. for me. Like if mm. I just went right to my desk and started working and I didn't shower or breakfast, it was like, all right, day shot. Yeah. I would feel, I would actually work less, but feel more exhausted. Mm-hmm. Because like my, I didn't have that routine. I didn't, I didn't have that separation in my apartment at the time of, all right, mm. this is where I'm working. Yes. This is where I'm sleeping. This is yes. where, and it, when it became one, yes. I found personally, even if I worked less, I found myself more exhausted because yeah. I, it was all one. So yeah. how do you think, let's just talk about that, like routine yeah. and separation at home. Well, that's really interesting because I, just because I am a writer, I know lots of writers and people develop all kinds of rituals of separation. So sometimes people will like walk around the block a few times to be like, this is my commute. I had a friend who worked at home and he had a rule that he couldn't, like he had, he lived in a studio apartment, but he couldn't sit on his bed and he couldn't go into the kitchen except at like set times. Cause he's like, once I sit on that bed, I'm definitely going to take a nap. You know, we're like, nothing good's going to happen. Like, I, I can't go into that part of my one room. So it was, he did it through space. I've heard of people having like work computers and leisure computers where they like literally will be on one computer and they won't let themselves use it for any other thing. They have to get up and go to a different computer to, cr- to try to create that. I mean, a lot of people, even if they're working at from home, they will work from a library or a coffee shop or something like that. Where So they're, they're like not at work. They're not commuting to work, especially if that's onerous, but they're putting themselves in a different environment. I often, there's a library right near my house and I often, when I'm writing, I will go there just because it's like, okay, I'm totally focused now. There's nothing else to do. And I like being, sometimes people like being around other people. If those people are not talking to you, but just kind of the social, just the buzz of kind of a lot of people, some people find to be really stimulating. That was something a lot of people talked about during the pandemic, that people who really thrived in that kind of environment, really, some of them were like playing cafe music, noise to try to give themselves the illusion. I don't think, I don't know that it worked that well, but you know, you saw people reaching for that kind of thing. And so I think you're, I think you're really right that part of it is the routine of like, I'm going into the office and now it's work time and now I'm coming back and now it's leisure time. And I do think there are, you do see differences among people. Some are compartmentalizers and some, and and some are not. Like some people really want to have like work is work. And then when I come home, I'm off the clock and I'm just doing my own thing. And then some people like have everything like, oh, I'm going to have lunch with a friend and I'm going to do some online holiday shopping in the middle of the day. But then I'm on Saturday, I'm going to work on that report for three hours. Like 
for them, they don't have that same sense of like of wanting to have uh, a clear delineation between work and life. And I think this is something where it's really helpful to know yourself. And it's also really helpful to know your coworkers and your team. And if you're a manager, the people who work for you, because if you have some people who are compartmentalizers and some people who are mixer uppers really get on each other's nerves without meaning to because they're not understanding that um, someone else has a different preference for how they use their time. And especially if the workplace isn't dictating, OK, now we're all at work. And the question is, OK, what happens on Saturdays? But if something if it's really like now we're at work, but I don't know where you are, you could be anywhere. Maybe you're in a different time zone. Like what's going on here? This is where I think being very transparent and very kind of really thinking through how do I work best? How do you work best? And how do we create an environment where we both thrive rather than trying to be like, well, this is the best practice. So this is how we're going to do it. Even if it doesn't work that well for you, like somebody says, this is the best way. It's like, well, maybe not. And something we found if we have evolved to this work from anywhere workplace mm -hmm. back when we had 50 people in here, it was so much easier to build relationships, yeah. not just for us, but a lot of our younger employees. Sure. There's the chit chat at that by the bar here, the bar being where the smoothies are made. It was just so much easier to have small talk that, yeah. that, that actually become leads to more meaningful talk and ultimately build strong relationships between yeah. team members. I think yeah. that's crucial specifically as you're young and in the workplace. And it's just harder to it do is. on Zoom and Google Hangout where we look, we're efficient, we're working well this way, but the, the meetings are so transactional where you show up and here's the agenda and we go, boom, we go to the next one. And, and, it, and it works, but in terms of building relationships, it becomes a lot more difficult. I mean, I think that's the million dollar question is exactly that. I think maybe if you've already had ex established relationships, it's a lot easier to maintain them virtually to keep them going. But I think what you're putting your finger on is what do you do with people who are not known, who need to form those relationships that have to become known to others? Like, how do they have the opportunity for like that early chit chat? And, oh, we're writing down in the elevator together. So we're talking a little bit or I'm walking this way, too. And so we or I have a question. but. I don't want to really officially ask this question because I think it's pretty dumb. But if you're just like walking by my desk and have a friendly look on your face, maybe I could just like point to my screen and be like, hey, I'm stuck. Like, tell me, like, what do I do next? There's so many things where it's just so much easier to do it in person where it's just it just feels so much more natural. And as you say, like anything that's that's on Zoom feels like we're here for a purpose. And once we're done with that purpose, then we go. It's hard that that sort of loose kind of in-between opportunity. That's, that yeah. is what's really hard to capture. And I don't know that anybody has really come up with a great solution. I think so many people are struggling with it, but it doesn't seem, it seems like a limitation of the technology. It's something where in real life, really, <laughs> it's just like, right. just works really much better in real life. I think people are really are trying. It's like For that sure. almost inadvertent, unintended, yes. informal apprenticeship yes. where you could say like, hey, can you help me out with this yeah. over here? I don't want to bother you, senior team member. It's so much more intrusive when you do that online. Well, and it's also, I mean, when I started jobs, I remember thinking like you learn just by osmosis almost. You're like, I don't even know how I know that. Or I, after the first week, you're just you're completely wrung out with exhaustion, but you just feel like you've absorbed so much. And I just think it would be harder if you weren't just immersed in a place and all the chatter and all the vocabulary and just everything that you're just taking in. Right. You right. say inadvertently. Yeah. So what do you do when 
you're a bit blue when you're having a bad day, when, mm. when the creator of the happiness project is, is not so happy. What do you do? Right. What's your go-to? My go-to is to go to sleep early. I always do feel better after a good night's sleep. And so I will go to bed as early as I think I can go to sleep. And then I'll listen to, if I don't think I can fall asleep right away, I'll like listen to a podcast and I just let myself drift off. That always makes me feel better. Um, I always try to reach out to some to a family member or a friend to connect socially because that always makes me feel better. And research shows that we do get a lift from connecting. And then sometimes I just try to do a little good deed, you know, do good, feel good. So if there's an email, like an introduction email that I've been meaning to write or like, oh, you asked me the title of that book and I need to go look it up and like figure it out and send it to you. Can I introduce two people who would be helpful to each other? Can I donate money to a cause where I've been like, you know what? I really should send, I should send some money to those folks. That often also will lift my spirits. What's one thing you absolutely should not do if mm. you're feeling down mm. <laughs> that is almost guaranteed to make things worse? Staying up way past your normal bedtime, binge watching a TV show. Because you will feel, you will feel perfectly awake and alert. You'll be like, I don't need to go to sleep. It's 3 a.m., but I am wide awake because you're watching some TV show that you love. I found this out because my sister for years have been trying to get me to watch Mad Men, and somehow I just missed it, right? But that's like 90 hours of TV. Um, but finally, I got to it. And usually I go to bed at like 10, but I was staying up till midnight. I would watch like three episodes a night. It was so good. And I felt I didn't feel tired at all. I was like, this is great. I guess I just can stay up till midnight. But what research shows is that people, most adults do need seven hours of sleep and people think that they can train themselves to get by on less sleep. But in fact, when researchers study these people, they're quite impaired. Like it really does affect your mood, your memory, your sense of humor, your, your immune function, all these things suffer. So after doing this for a while, I started realizing, you know what, I think I better cut it back and stick to my bedtime because it feels great in the moment, but you don't want to do something to make you feel good in the moment that just makes you feel bad in the long run. And staying up way past your bedtime is usually something that's not going to make you happier. So understood, won't stay up too late, but I will comment doesn't the type of television have an impact? So I love Mad Men, but it could be a little dark. You it know? is dark. If you, if you compare Mad Men to say like Ted Lasso, which is yeah. everyone's, I just started watching. I'm like, this is amazing. Everyone's mm -hmm. feel good comedy. Like d does it, and compare that to watching one of the major news networks. No, well news. Yeah. That's even a different. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but assuming all, all TV is not, or all entertainment is not created equal. I think um, way past your bedtime, all TV is created equal. You could be watching Parks and Recreation, you know, which is <laughs> such a sweet show. And if, if it's 3 a.m. and you should have gone to bed at 1030, doesn't matter. <laughs> it's okay. like it's not going to it's not going to it's not going to do you um, any favors in the morning, I think. Got it. So then what's one thing that will absolutely work? Like if there's one takeaway for our listeners where you can do this one thing and you guarantee there's going to be some percentage increase, whether it's 5% or 10%, as Dan Harris would say, like some, yeah. something's going to have an impact. What's that thing we should all take away with us? Take a step to broaden or deepen a relationship, whether that's just like sending a text to a friend that you haven't talked to in a while, email someone, pick up the phone, talk to the, the person in the drugstore that you see from time to time, like anytime we can feel like we're connecting with other people, we get a boost. And that's always a good use of our time, energy, and money is to do something that helps us draw closer to other people. Coming back to, you know, th there's been so much great research, 
and science on happiness. And I think you were one of the catalysts with the happiness project. There's, it's not like people weren't focused on happiness previously, but I think you're one of the few people who kind of put it at the forefront and leverage what, what does science have to say about this? So I'm curious, what does science say today? Are there any recent studies that you think are interesting where you said, oh, wow, this, let's explore this. Maybe this is subject of a next, next book or podcast mm. or content for you. What are you paying attention to in terms of the research? I am paying attention to the five senses. I started this before the pandemic, but the pandemic has just like, it has made me, and I think the whole world much more attuned to our senses, partly because of, you know, people losing their sense of smell and therefore their sense of taste during COVID, the feeling of not being able to touch and hug people and pe made people so much more aware of their sense of touch. I am very interested in how tapping into the five senses can give us this feeling of like vitality and connection. Um, there's all sorts of research. You know, the brain, there's just brain research is exploding and the tools are getting better. And it's absolutely fascinating. And I, and how technology can play a role in helping people who, are, who have experienced, you know, loss of a sensory, of sensory information also um, is, is so fascinating to see. So that's something that I'm really excited about. And I feel like the research is accelerating in that area. And I'm talking about the big five. And I know that I'm sure many of your listeners are like, but hey, Gretchen, there's more than five. Yes. Research. <laughs> Researchers say now there's maybe 33 senses, but I'm sticking to the, you could call them the kindergarten five or the Aristotelian five, like the big five that we, the big glamorous five, because they're all, not to say that the other ones aren't fascinating. They're absolutely fascinating. And I love learning about them. And again, research is just uncovering so much sophisticated work that the brain does. But the big five was enough to get me started. So that's what I'm focusing on. Very excited about the research in that area. No, I'm excited to read that book. We're going to have to have you back to talk about <laughs> that. So, so I don't want to, obviously we're going to have you back to talk about the big five when the book comes out. When will the book come out? 2023. So it's oh, a ways wow. off. Okay. okay. Yeah. But on that, so in closing the, for the big five, can you touch on one of the sentence and just share an anecdote that you mm. thought was powerful? Well, one of the things that I thought was just, it's very funny is about ketchup. Right. It's like, why is ketchup so magical? Because everybody loves ketchup. It's like one of the most popular foods. And it turns out that ketchup is one of the rare tastes that hits all five. It's sweet. It's sour. It's salty. It's bitter. It's umami. And that's why it just tickles us so much. And it, people, you, like little kids put ketchup on everything. Ketchup is, there's ketchup, there's like an extraordinary number of uh, bottles of ketchup are sold every year. And I just thought that was so funny that sure enough, it hits all five. And that's why we seem to have a special appreciation for it. But the sense of taste it, 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 and the connection of the sense of smell, like really understanding that if you cannot smell, you have only the most basic sense of taste. It really... I think we all kind of know that from sort of grade school biology, but when you really test it, it really is extraordinary when you see how the senses cooperate and, and kind of enchant us to give us all kinds of illusions that we're not aware of. The brain is doing a lot to kind of smooth our path and help us understand what's going on. Not always exactly accurate. Fascinating. And, I, and I'm glad there are healthier options of ketchup like Primal Kitchen these days. Because some of the original ketchup when I was a kid, oh, yeah. not so oh, good, yeah, yeah, not, yeah, so, yeah. not so healthy. There are better options now, <laughs> but, it, but, it, but it's fascinating. And it, wow, I'm excited for that book. Well, Gretchen, thank you so much. Thank you. I so enjoyed our conversation. 